Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, ecological and political crises that we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is none other than Green Party MP and former leader of the Green Party, Caroline Lucas. It was such an honor to have her on the show. It marks a really big milestone for Planet Critical. And I'm just so grateful that she made time for, for all of us, for me and for all of you. <laughs> so listeners, what did we discuss? Well, the Tory leadership campaign, of course. Uh, whether or not Rishi Sunak and Liz Trust are engaging in willful ignorance or if they are politicking around their sort of desperate misunderstanding of the climate crisis, what that means politically for a nation like the United Kingdom, the difference between votable policies and necessary policies. And Caroline says we have to stop talking about net zero. We have to start talking about real zero. And we also talk about the hegemony of the global north and the arrogance that climate solutions are going to come from us who caused the problem when you only have to look at Latin America to see not only this pink tide of leftist governments getting in, but also radical climate policies that are not being discussed enough in the media over in this country or by the politicians. There's a lot to love in this episode. I only had 30 minutes with Caroline, so it is a little bit shorter than it normally is. But it was just so refreshing to speak with a British politician who is not only willing to make time for a little media outlet like Planet Critical, but to speak with passion and integrity about the problems that we face and be willing to face up to the necessary solutions. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you want to support Planet Critical, you can do so with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. And a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who support the project and keep it going every week. Thank you so much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's such an honor to have you on the show. That's really kind. Thank you. So I think we would be remiss uh, to start this conversation without also talking about the Tory leadership campaign that is running at the moment and the fact that the two people who are left, Sunak and Truss, um, were openly sort of dismissing net zero claims and necessities and policies before London was burning in wildfires uh, in 40 degree heat a few days ago. I mean, how can we be at this stage um, with everything that we know about the climate crisis and have two leading quote unquote politicians making such claims? Well, it's an incredibly good question. And frankly, I wish I had a good answer because it just seems so, so incredibly perverse, not least because we know that action on tackling the climate and, and nature crises are, are actually popular, not just with conservative voters, but with the country as a, as a whole. Right. Not only that, but we also know that investment in a green economy is exactly the way to level up the country, to create the thousands of jobs that the Tory leadership candidates are promising. So to set their face against the one way that we could get ourselves off dependence on, on Russian gas, the way that we could get people's fuel bills down just seems to be utterly perverse. And, and quite frankly, I'm really quite struggling to understand what their thinking is. I think they must be just so obsessed with kind of a, an ideological deregulatory zeal mm. that even when that flies in the face of all of the evidence, they're still, they're still stuck with it. But I mean, these people are your colleagues in Westminster say, um, do they know 
are they I mean how much of this is sort of a performative game that they're playing towards the the public and their fellow MPs in a bid to to get a vote how much of this is the kind of politics that the public are very wary of which is purely nonsense in order to get ahead it's a really good question um I, I mean I'm 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 worried about about the chancellor because I've sat through parliamentary budget statements where he's not even mentioned the word climate, which seems to me to be quite extraordinary. Right. And he hasn't been positive about um, environmental action. We know that on so many areas, the Treasury has been a block to progress. So I fear, I, I mean, I'm not even quite sure which is the worst of, of the two scenarios that you've painted. You know, do people mm. know the truth and they're just pretending not to or, or do they genuinely not understand it? I think with, with Rishi Sunak, from the evidence that I've seen, that he just doesn't get it. I mean, we right. just have seen the Treasury being a block from the start. I must say I've, I've seen less of, of, of Liz Truss on this, but the fact that she wants to get rid of the green levies, which are exactly the mechanism that channels funding to some of the poorest households to protect them mm -hmm. from higher energy prices, seems to me to be completely perverse. So I might just conclude that they don't get it, which you know, in the 21st century and 2022 is, is pretty scary stuff. Mm, absolutely. And well, just one last question, I think, on sort of the conservatives and the public and politics in general it would be, obviously, uh, Boris just survived a uh, um, uh, no confidence vote again, somehow, um, just earlier this week. How? I mean, this is this is our version of Donald Trump. He has lied repeatedly to the British public. He has lied to Parliament. He has protected um, sexual predators. How? Is it that we have gotten to this stage where the Conservative Party are protecting this man above protecting sort of the public interest? Um, and how are the the other parties, the opposition parties, going to have to respond in order to sort of get out this very insidious and dangerous trend um, that seems to have sort of swept over the Atlantic and, and fallen on Westminster? Yeah, I mean, it was a, a pretty disgusting sight, frankly. Mm -hmm. Just seeing, just at the, his last Prime Minister's questions, for example, seeing yeah. the, the, the huge applause and the clapping yeah. from the top benches, um, with the with the signal exception to her credit of, of Theresa May, who just <laughs> got up and walked out, um, which is probably the time when most of us have felt the most sympathy with uh, with Theresa May. And um, I, I, I mean, I, I I can only hope that um, this is a bit of a trigger for the opposition parties to work more closely together yeah. to make sure that at the next election we don't simply split the votes and let the Tories through again because I think after all we know about the Conservative Party because it isn't just Boris Johnson it is all of those people who have been complicit with who have yeah. sat and you know but basically not resigned until the very last moment when it was clearly in their own political interest to do so but, but when it came to the kind of moral questions about whether a a serial liar, someone who is incapable of honesty and decency. When it came to asking, you know, should they be uh, propping, propping him up, that they absolutely have been. Let's let's talk a little bit about net zero. Um, what I'm particularly interested in speaking with you today about is kind of like a potential coalition between a Labour government or a Labour Party and a Green Party, nationally, internationally whether or not it's sort of that purple stance that is going to be necessary to push the uh, requisite policies into the mainstream. And then also whether or not what we're discussing is enough right now. Um, so net zero is the term that is bandied around a lot. And yet there are many, many, many climate scientists around the world that are saying net zero is simply not enough. 
it is a an umbrella for continuing business as usual and avoiding the difficult um, conversation of absolute reduction in the global north. What do you think the role of the Green Party is, for example, in having these kinds of conversations? Because obviously you need to win votes in order to get into parliament, in order to make change. But what kind of trade-off is there right now between um, a votable manifesto and votable policies and the really necessary things that we need to do in the face of the urgency of the climate crisis? Well, look, the, the Green Party exists to tell the truth as we see it on the environmental crisis. That's why we've al always existed. We've been mm. around now for nearly 50 years. Um, and that has been our guiding principle. It's not been about the trade-offs to make a, uh, an electable manifesto, if you, mm -hmm. if you like. It's been about telling the truth. And if the Green Party is not doing that, then, then we're not doing our job. I, I mean, I think the, the increasingly positive uh, thing is that, that actually we know that if you take the green agenda seriously, then, then actually that can be a votable uh, manifesto. I think there is much greater appetite for green action uh, in, the, in the population as a whole than most politicians give people credit for. And in particular, if you combine social and environmental justice, which to the Greens is absolutely central. Yeah. I mean, what you don't do is, is, is what President Macron tried to do in, in France with, with the understandable backlash from the so-called Gilets Jaunes, you know, when he was basically trying to have a, a green transition on, on the backs of the poor and the poorest mm. were paying the price and were not given any support. Mm. That is not the way to do it. But I think all of the policies that um, I've been championing and and to his credit, people like Clive Lewis from the Labour Party has too, and we've worked together on this, are plans for a so-called Green New Deal. I mean, I was one of the very first people in the UK um, many years ago now who, who, who came together to um, come up with a Green New Deal policy even before the financial crisis, just as the financial crisis hit. Then, of course, we've seen people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the U United States taking it up with such success. Uh, and, and I think what's so significant about, about a Green New Deal approach is precisely understanding that we have to include social issues as part of our environmental package. We have to make sure that we're talking to uh, some of the poorest people in our communities and recognising that they are the ones on the front line of the climate crisis, whether you're talking about the UK or whether you're talking about the, the, the globe. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that is what the Green Party is about. To your question, a really good question about whether net zero is enough. I mean, that little word net, three little letters, I think are doing a <laughs> hell of a lot of work mm. and, um, and basically pulling the wool over people's eyes, as, as your question kind of suggested, in the sense that it allows anybody and everybody to sign up to net zero because what it means in their minds is that they'll do a bit of carbon reduction where it's convenient, but then they will pretend that a whole set of measures like planting, you know, whole countries worth of trees somehow is going to be able to absorb mm. the rest of their carbon emissions. And if you, if you look at what's already been pledged, I mean, basically the planet seems to have been, you know, completely covered in trees many yeah. times over if you were to seriously add up all yeah. of the different commitments that these different companies and countries have made yeah. saying are they going to meet their targets. That is not what we should allow them to do. It absolutely has to be about domestic carbon reduction at source. Mm -hmm. So I would rather we were talking about real zero and not net zero. Excellent. But then how do we get parties that aren't the Green Party to discuss that openly to the public? And how do we discuss it in a language as well that doesn't suggest or infer that, oh, this is quite a scary thing, but it's okay. Surely there is a way of sort of selling these messages in the way that you've just said, like, this is the best for people, this is the best for environment, that doesn't scaremonger in the sense of 
the reluctance to discuss it in the first place? Well, again, I think one of the frustrations of, of, of this conversation is that is that the measures that we need for real zero are, are indeed measures that by and large are very positive yeah. for, for people generally. I mean, one of the big things that's been missing from the government's climate strategy and, 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 and from uh, repeated budget announcements and so forth has been the very obvious policy. I mean, the blindingly obvious policy of trying to save energy before you start worrying about the supply side. Where is the downside in all of this? Mm. You know, people are crying out to have homes that are warm in winter and cool in the summer. And insulation measures can help with both of those things. You know, where is the street by street, local authority led home insulation scheme free for those who need it that would yeah. properly mean that people can be equipped to, to get food on the table, to get their fuel bills down, to get emissions down, to create hundreds of thousands of jobs across the country. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. And yet this is a government that has signally failed each time it's tried to do it. And now it's just given up. Mm. So we've had the Green Homes Grant just in recent years, which completely collapsed, um, utterly undermined the supply chains in all of those parts of, of the industry that are geared up to trying to deliver this in a, in a home by home basis. Um, and it's just covered by incompetence. If, if only the government would give money to the local authorities who know how to do this stuff, and many of them are doing them. And, and I just want to give a shout out for the Greens in, in Lewis, for example. The Greens are in a joint administration in Lewis, in East Sussex. They've joined forces with five or six other local councils. They've pooled their finances and they are exactly rolling out this street by street home insulation program in such a way that builds the local supply chain, that, that builds confidence in the industry, that gets money back into the local economy and delivers. If we could be scaling that up, if the government could just have the, have the insight to do that, then people would see really practical gains from the green agenda. It wouldn't be something that was being imposed on them. Mm. It would be something that they were getting very practical financial support um, and, and, and benefits from. Do you think that these are the kinds of policies that Green and Labour could um, collaborate on in the future? Because as you said, if at the heart of the Green Manifesto is also these socialist policies, essentially putting people first and protecting the poor, that used to be the heart of Labour's manifesto as well. Well, I, I, as you say, it did you think. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to know to know where Labour is on this at, at the minute. I mean, they do have some... Um, uh, reasonably ambitious um, proposals for for investment in the green economy. And so hopefully there, there would indeed be capacity to, to have some kind of, of conversation about how we could work together on that. And a prerequisite to anything bigger than that, in a sense, is electoral reform. And, and, mm. and that's where it is so frustrating because at the last Labour Party conference, the issue of electoral reform was was right at the top of their agenda. We we know that over half the local parties, the local Labour parties, had wanted that to be discussed at conference, and yet at the last minute, it was blocked and it fell. Uh, I know there's going to be an attempt, or at least I think there is, at the next Labour Party conference to get it back on the agenda and and to make it part of Labour's um, manifesto at the next mm. election. But it just feels to me that you, you know this isn't just special pleading from the Greens, for whom obviously electoral reform would be would be um, advantageous. But I think there's a lot of evidence to show that Labour would actually do better under yeah. representation. Yeah. Um, it is still, in spite of the Tory kind of you know, collapse that we're seeing in a way, it is still monumentally difficult for Labour to win a, an outright majority under, under first past the post at, at the moment. So, so why not 
you know, have these conversations and try to rescue the country from, you know, a government of either Liz Truss or, or, or Rishi Sunak. I mean, I saw one Tory activist saying it's like being asked whether you want to be shot or stabbed. I mean, <laughs> either of those two proposals is not a positive one for this country. And I think that progressives have a duty to be working together to try to avoid it. Well, it seems like any sort of electoral electoral reform, like single transferable votes as well, would kind of increase um, coalitions and working uh, across parties just by the very fact that you would become perhaps even more aware than before of whose sec people's second choices were and where those kind of natural political alignments are. Um, it would seem odd that Labour wouldn't want that too, given how much the vote is split between all of these different parties that are focusing on very necessary reforms throughout the country. Um, but, you know, cannot stand against the behemoth of uh, conservatives that seem to win on look after your own and we'll look after you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, there, you know, we can have a conversation about different electoral systems and, and there are advantages and disadvantages of each. Um, personally, I, I, I do think in this country that the constituency link is something that is is very much embedded in people's expectations of of their members of parliament and therefore, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of, of electoral reform just now, but there are obviously mm. the favour of the additional member system, which does have slightly larger constituencies, but does keep the, the constituency link. And, and that might also be, um, you know, a, a, a good way forward in terms of getting the broader support mm. uh, for it. But, but either way, we have to break this model where you've got, you know, a, a Conservative Party who won just 43% of the vote at the last election, yeah. have this giant majority of 80 yeah. Um, able then to bulldoze through whatever they they think, um, uh, uh, and whether or not that's actually got majority support in the country, and and all of the evidence suggests that it doesn't. You said um, earlier you, you used the word incompetent when describing the government, and um, I there's so much of me that wants to agree, and yet there's another part uh, that thinks, well, how incompetent are these? These people are incredibly rich and incredibly good at networking to get what they need. Uh, Boris Johnson's very good at disappearing off to Italy uh, to meet with Russians when he's foreign secretary. You know, these people are very good at doing whatever they think they need to do for themselves. And I think sometimes calling them incompetent is very helpful. Mm -hmm. And yet other times it's perhaps dangerous because we're not addressing the fact that they're they're obviously choosing to act in this way. These people are well-educated, they are intelligent, they know surely what is actually going on with the climate and the economy and all this kind of thing. I think I do understand what you're saying and I, and I agree with you to the extent that if we call them simply incompetent, it kind of overlooks and lets them off the hook of the fact that they are, in fact, you know, ideologically driven, they, they are very self-interested, they're lining their own pockets, mm. they, you know, they're in the pockets of, 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 of big business and, and oil companies in particular, and, and there is a logic to, to doing what they're doing. And I, and I, I, do, I, I do accept that argument as well. And I suppose it's possible to be incompetent in the way that you run the government in terms of, you know, whether or not the health system is, is, is working well or whether or not people can get their passports, which is like a big issue right now. Mm. But my inbox and, and, you know, the Home Office is, is, I think, frankly, incompetent when it comes to actually delivery for the people. Whether or not that is also entirely uh, consistent with with ministers being out for themselves, I think I think both of those things can be true. Mm. Um, and I and I do take your point that um, the people who are in power are not stupid, and and they do have a whole set of vested interests, and 
you know, you, you, you alluded there to, to the extraordinary story of, of, of Boris Johnson right after the Salisbury poisonings, right after having a, a major uh, international meeting to discuss what to do about, about that, going on his own without any security detail when he was foreign minister to the, um, to the Lebedev villa in Italy. To, to what end? What was he doing yeah. there? You know, and then you yeah. see, as you say, that um, uh, that one of Lebedev's is, is is then elevated to the House of Lords. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it does just stink of of backhandism. I, you know, who who knows what's going on there? But yeah, it's 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 certainly more than just incompetence. I would agree with you. Yeah, there seems to be a, a very much a sort of democratic and political crisis sort of taking hold across the world. Uh, whether that is rooted in sort of the extractive capitalism and a hangover from colonialism and all these things that a lot of um, scholars seem to think, and I would be likely to agree, uh, we are definitely going to need to see reform. And on that, I would really love to know what the what your stance is on degrowth as a policy and whether or not that's going to be necessary in the future. I I um. I struggle slightly with the word degrowth. I think I prefer post-growth, but maybe we're dancing on the head of a pin. <laughs> um, it, it, in the sense that you were talking earlier about, you know, how do you make policies not sound scary? Yeah. And and I think in a way post-growth is, is more accurate because it's it's actually starting from the point of saying, what do we want our economists to do? And mm. And I think most people would agree that just asking for our economists to grow infinitely on a planet of, of finite resources is a pretty stupid thing to do. But what we do want our economy to do is to deliver thriving livelihoods for everybody on a, on a, on a planet of finite resources in such a way that doesn't, not only doesn't undermine and, and, and damage the planet more, but in a way that is planet restorative and nature positive future. So it's a, a future that is positive both for, for, for nature and, and for ourselves and, and, and all of ourselves, not just the wealthier among us. Mm. I think if you start with that question, then in a sense, you know, certain parts of of, of the economy undoubtedly will grow, um, but it will be more than balanced by by those parts of the economy that that absolutely won't and can't. You know, whether that's more roads or or, or more airports or, or or more oil and gas out of the out of the North Sea. And mm. so, um, I I absolutely do think that at the heart of this debate and, and, and perhaps where we might have difficulties with Labour would be to say, you know, that we, 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 we can't simply think that the overall objective is to have an economy that keeps growing. And yet every time I hear, you know, Labour shadow teams talk, that's what they're still talking about. Yeah. And, and this growth model we know has not delivered for, for, for ordinary people and certainly hasn't delivered for, for a planet that is, well, it was literally quite on fire at, at, at this moment. Yeah, it seems um, quite odd to me, this sort of um, obsession still with growth, when, as you said, it's just not working for ordinary people. It is <laughs> economic growth. It's, it's a model that has not worked and people are fed up. They want to work less and they want to have more access to sort of universal basic services. And yeah. so any sort of Labour Party or any party that is still trumping on about these sort of ancient models that are failing the public just sort of prove kind of how disconnected they are. I think people are so, so, so ready for a change. And it baffles me that um, more radical policies are not being introduced by the main block of the opposition party, because it seems like now would be the best time to do so. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think his Starmer has been so anxious to kind of, in his terms, detoxify the party from Jeremy mm. Corbyn, that throwing the baby out with the bathwater, you, you, you know, and, and there were, 
you know, areas where we absolutely could have collaborated, not least because quite a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto was actually taken from the Green Party. So yeah. whether that was on a shorter working week or universal basic income, or as you say, universal basic services, um, land value taxation, these have all been longstanding Green Party policies. Mm. And we'd love to talk to anybody who, who's, you know, who, who agrees with us and, and wants to find a way forward on those things. And the, the public, I think, is now miles ahead of, 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 of any of the main political parties in terms of of the kinds of lives that they're thinking about wanting to live now. And perhaps the pandemic has given people more of a chance to, to reflect on that. What do you think, uh, just as a final question, I think it's really important as well to think about breaking this sort of hegemonic view that it is the West that will solve this problem. The West that created this problem will also solve <laughs> this problem. When looking at Chile, that just voted in a completely socialist uh, government and is rewriting a constitution that puts nature first and protects the inherent right of nature to exist. Um, where, where else in the world can uh, politicians and the public look to in places that have typically been overlooked for these kinds of very inspiring radical policies that are doing what is necessary to combat the climate crisis? Well, I love the example of Chile, and I think what's happening there is just so exciting, mm. and yet it's hardly being covered in this country at all. You would yeah. hardly know that that was happening. Um, and I think, you know, maybe on a smaller scale, but in, in lots of different states of different countries, there's really exciting things happening. And there's so much that we can learn. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the restorative agriculture that's happening in India, mm. where, um, you know, they've absolutely said we don't want genetic uh, modification. Thank you very much. What we want is the ability to use, you know, many of the, the, the traditions that have actually served us well in the past um, and, uh, and to be supported to do that. So. There is an extraordinary arrogance, I think, in, in, in the North, as you, as you suggest, that um, we, we have really messed up big time, and yet we mm. still think that we're the ones who are going to be able to uh, um, dictate what the, what, the, what the future looks like. Um, it, it feels to me that in order to allow the, the innovation and, and, the, and the insights um, from so much of the Global South to really flourish and thrive, we do need to look at debt. And yeah. there's a, a new campaign, a climate debt campaign, which I very much support, which is absolutely saying that now more than ever, we need to lift the shackles of that debt that is paid over so many times in any case, you know, in terms of the interest that's already been paid, that those debts have been paid off by and large in any case. But they, we ought to lift that debt and, and allow, you know, all, all countries to be able to bring their, their wisdom to the table and in a way that we can we can learn from and 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 share and, and scale up rather than basically still shackling so much of the globe with with debts that that you know are are, are immoral frankly yeah absolutely I, I i know that you have to go but just quickly on that i think something fascinating that i just found out recently is that it shouldn't be that surprising but the uk and the usa are also the two main countries that are leading um, the blocking of negotiations about climate reparations. Um, they did it at COP26, they did it at Bonn, uh, they did it somewhere else as well, I can't remember, despite the fact that these were tabled initially at COP26 in sort of the first few days as very, very yeah. necessary discussions, and yet they're blocking it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, ru I'm, I'm running out of, of, of words to describe <laughs> just, just how immoral and shameful and unjust I mean, it is, you know, people rightly call, talk about climate justice and justice yeah. is at the heart of this debate and um, we're simply um, not, not seeing it. And, and, and to see those countries who have benefited most from the, 
from the injustice of the past and slavery and all of that is is just to see them you know blocking any kind of hope for the future is is particularly dispiriting but I don't want to end on a, on a bad note on that. And I think there are so many. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be in Glasgow. And, you know, when it came to the Alternative Summit, there was just so many, so many fantastic groups there. Mm. And he is right across from right across the globe. And, um, yeah, I, I want to end on a positive note because because we, we do have the ideas on our side. We have we have the moral right on our side. Yeah. And um, yeah, and we'll keep fighting. Yeah, there's lots of fantastic people doing amazing things around the world. And we have everything except the power <laughs> to do what we We're need working to do. on it. We're, We're working, working on it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Caroline, thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you so much. If you want to learn more about the Green Party in the UK, I've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week. If you want to learn more about the Green Party in the UK, I've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. As always, a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make all of this work possible. Thank you all for listening. I'll see you next week.